Boker Tov, good morning everyone. Shalom and welcome to our Aliyah Day. Glad that you are joining me. If you are a first time uh, viewer here, then we welcome you. Glad that you're with us. From wherever you are watching, we have people who are watching from various places and we are so glad that uh, you're with us this morning. Baruch Hashem. <clears throat> Today, we are actually going to cover the third and the fourth Aliyah of the uh, parasha. Today would normally be, of course, the third Aliyah, but the third Aliyah, the third Aliyah is very short, and uh, we pretty much covered it yesterday, so we're going to get into the third and fourth Aliyah, and uh, it's going to be amazing. So today's portion, especially with the fourth Aliyah, includes the uh, passage of Torah, which is probably the the biggest um, the biggest why as to uh, the why for Lapid Judaism and, and the reason we exist. So this happens, the, the passage I'm referring to is Exodus chapter 19, verses 1 through 6. This is the most important passage, I think, with respect to Lapid Judaism uh, and us being who we are. And it's, of course, uh, for all of Judaism as well, but, but particularly uh, for us. So we are in the Art School Humash. We are on page 401. The third Aliyah begins in uh, chapter 18 and begins in verse 24 and just goes to verse 27. So it's just a few verses, uh, obviously very, very short. And then we get into chapter 19. So let's go ahead and read the third Aliyah, which is, it says... Moses heeded the voice of his father-in-law and did everything that he had said. And Moses chose men of accomplishment from among all Israel and appointed them heads of the people, leaders of thousands, leaders of hundreds, leaders of fifties, leaders of tens. They judged the people at all times, the difficult things they would bring to Moshe and the minor things they they themselves would judge. Moses sent off his father-in-law and he went to his own land. End of the third Aliyah, beginning the first Aliyah, or excuse me, Slika, the fourth Aliyah in the first verse of chapter 19. So this is, again, the uh, the, the passage of Scripture that has, for so many years, uh, really inspired me uh, and inspired me to, um, you know, to initiate this movement, I guess. So it says here, in the third month of the exodus of the children of Israel... From the land of Mitzrayim on this day, they arrived at the wilderness of Sinai. They journeyed from Rephidim and arrived at the wilderness of Sinai and encamped in the wilderness. And Israel encamped there opposite the mountain. And Moshe ascended to God and Hashem called to him from the mountain saying, So shall you say to the house of Yaakov and relate to the children of Israel, You have seen what I did to Egypt, and that I have borne you on the wings of an eagle and brought you to me. And now, if you hearken well to me and observe my covenant, you shall be to me the most beloved treasure of all people, for mine is the entire world. And you shall be a kingdom of ministers, a kingdom of priests, and a holy nation. These are the words you shall speak to the children of Israel. That's the end of the fourth Aliyah. Now, Diving right into this particular passage, I want to begin by the cliffhanger that I left yesterday on the table, 
that I said I was going to hold to today. It's an amazing insight from Rabbeinu Bakya to uh, yesterday's Aliyah. And it's a portion of scripture that is discussing the, uh, the relative importance of the proximity of the conversion of Yitro, the story of Yitro as a convert, and the, uh, the battle with Amalek, and why the two are connected. The fact of the matter is, is that Amalek was a descendant of Esau, um, and we have here, <coughs> where we have um, uh, Yitro, who is actually, according to uh, Rabbeinu Bakya, is actually a descendant of Avraham and Keturah. So through his, he can trace his lineage back to Avraham, but it's not through Avraham and Sarah, it's through Avraham and Keturah. But so it's talking about here why there is a connection between the two. Now, going back to what we just read in Exodus chapter 19, Hashem, the whole purpose, I've said this multiple times, but it, it bears repeating here, the entire purpose, the entire reason for the Exodus, the why, the why to, to, to why Hashem brought us out of Mitzrayim, was so that we could receive the Torah and live for God as a kingdom of priests. The apostle Kepha, Peter, repeats this when he wrote his letter. He repeated from Exodus 19 as he's talking to the people who were formerly Gentiles. He's saying, now you have been brought into the kingdom, just like Yitro, just like all the other uh, converts. And so the purpose of God, the purpose of God giving redemption to the world, the purpose of Hashem providing the lamb that would take away the sins, the entire purpose was to bring us into a way of life, the way of life of Torah. And Rabbeinu Bakya, in what I'm about to read, um, confirms this reality. This is what he says. It is possible to explain the proximity of these two paragraphs, that is, the fight against Amalek and the arrival of Yitro, followed by the paragraph of the revelation of Mount Sinai, followed in turn by Parashat Mishpatim. It, it is in fact, it is a fact of life that the descendants of Esau are a painful thorn for the Jewish people throughout our history, no less so during the first hostile encounter reported at the end of Parashat Beshalach. Then, at the end of our exile, when God will bring the final redemption. So, as we started the exile as we in, in Beshalach, we find ourselves fighting Esau, fighting Amalek. What is Esau? Esau is doubt. Esau is doubt. And doubt, as we said in the first Aliyah, doubt has a way of disguising itself as faith, oddly enough. So this is why this, the... Um, the sages came to equate Esau with Christianity because it had a form of truth, but it lacked the power thereof. So it says, we have a hint here that just as Israel was successful in its first encounter with Amalek, with the help of Moses and Joshua, so it will be during the final encounter in the future. During the exile in which we find ourselves nowadays, we will be helped by the prophet Elijah a descendant of the tribe of Levi, like Moses. Now listen to this. He just got through saying that the way in which we defeated 
Amalek was through Moses. Moses is, is from the tribe of Levi. So Moses is likened to Elijah. Okay? And it says, how else do we defeat Amalek? We defeated Amalek how? Because Joshua fought the battle. What is Joshua's name in Hebrew? It's Yehoshua. What is Yeshua? Yeshua is short for Yehoshua. This is why in many cases when when one is speaking about Joshua and they're using they're speaking in Hebrew, they will say Yeshua because Yeshua is Joshua. Many people have said by the way. And you should uh, remember this in case you're having a conversation and you want to inspire somebody's interest. Many people have said that uh, Jesus is just a English translation of Yeshua. So when you say Jesus, it's the same thing. Because Yeshua and Jesus, it's the same thing. One is Hebrew, one is English. But you should know that is absolutely not true in any way, shape, or form. That is not true. It's simply not true. It is, is, a, it is a, a, a false statement. Uh, the fact of the matter is, is if you were going to translate Yeshua into English, you would say Joshua. That's what you would say. Not Jesus. Jesus is a made-up word, really. It's a trans it's a translation of a translation of a transliteration. It's uh it's really a made-up name. And so I'm just saying it, that's the fact of the matter. But this would pique somebody's interest. Like, wow, okay. So if we understand that, when we look at the, at Joshua and his relationship to Mashiach, the uh the connection becomes crystal clear. So we see here. He says that Elijah is likened to Moses. Why? Because Moses is from the tribe of Levi. The second helper, that is Yeshua, Joshua, will be like Mashiach ben Yosef, the redeemer from the tribe of of, uh, Joseph, like Joshua, who was also from the tribe of Ephraim. Do you understand what Rabbeinu Bakke just said without probably him even realizing he said it? He said that the two people that are going to defeat uh, Amalek is Moses and Yeshua. And Yeshua, he's saying right here, happens to be Mashiach ben Yosef. (laughs) Is it any wonder then that when Yeshua had his transformation on the mountain, remember, and the disciples saw, what did they see? They saw Yeshua standing on top of the mountain and who was to his right and who was to his left? Elijah and Moses. Why? Because Yeshua, Messiah ben Yosef, is going to cause the destruction of Amalek. How? Through Moses, the Torah, and Elijah, the Ruach HaKodesh. Moses represents the the water. Elijah represents the fire. So anyway, it says here, the second helper, helper to be like the Messiah ben Yosef, the redeemer from the tribe of Yosef, like Joshua, who is from the tribe of Ephraim. So it says here, just as the first redemption resulted in Yitro converting to Judaism and returning to the fold, returning to the fold. Why? Because all mankind ultimately are related to Adam. And Adam is... Um, you know, arguably, you could say that Adam was the first Jew. You could say that. I think there's, a, I think there's a valid argument for that. Of course, it says here that he's returning to the fold because ultimately he was, he was his ancestor was Abraham through Keturah, but still. But I want you to catch the phrase here that Rabbi Nubakia says. What was the result of the of the first redemption? The result of the first redemption was the quintessential pagan was 
was brought into the fold? Did he did did it say he became a messianic gentile? No. It said he became a convert. That was the result of the redemption. By the way, you can't find messianic gentiles anywhere. In any Jewish literature, you can't find them in any type of uh, inference of Torah. You can't find them in any Midrash. The only place you find the concept of a Messianic Gentile is in a church. That's all. But in a Jewish world, it's it's non-extent. You don't have them. What you have is converts. So anyway, I digress. It says here, So, as a result of the final redemption... Listen to this, please. I want you to pay attention. If you're driving, pull over. Get a, get a coffee or something. Listen. So as a result of the final redemption, all the surviving Gentile nations will convert and join Judaism. Oh my goodness. My friends, do you see? What is the ultimate goal of Hashem? What is the ultimate outcome? The ultimate outcome is every single person Regardless of your heritage, regardless of who, what type of home you were born in, every single person eventually will keep Torah. And so why not start today? So it says here, the reason that the portion of Yitro, which contains the account of the giving of the Torah, also follows the story of the fight against Amalek and Yitro's conversion is, so here's the reason, it is that the report of the giving of the Torah is a reminder That eventually the Torah will become the property of all mankind and God's name and knowledge of him will be worldwide like the waters which cover the ocean from Isaiah 11.9. Following that redemption, there will be a Yom Hadin, a day of judgment, a resurrection of the dead. This is why the portion of follows the giving, that, that is the portion ve'ele ha'mishpatim, follows the giving of the Torah to signal to us that the resurrection and the eternal life will be for those who observe the commandments spelled out in that portion. The resurrection and the life will be for those who obey the commandments spelled out in those in that portion. What portion? Ve'ele ha'mishpatim, which happens to be the Rebbe Tzins. Uh, portion of Sar Shalom. So this is also this is also supported by the Book of Revelation, where it says that the dragon is going to come after those who do what? It says in two places that the enemy is going to war against those. Amalek is going to fight against those who do what? Who have faith in the Messiah and who are faithful to the Torah. It says that twice in the book of Revelation. So this tells us that you can't, it's not going to be sufficient to have faith alone in Messiah. You actually have to be walking in the Torah. That's just a fact of the matter. Does it mean that the Torah saves you? No, but it means that you have to be faithful to the commandments. We're saved by the grace of God through the atoning work of Mashiach Yeshua. Absolutely. But that devoid of Torah doesn't cut it. And that's what Yeshua said, by the way, in Matthew 7, 23. He said, away from me, I don't know you, you workers of iniquity. You look up the word for workers of iniquity. It's the Greek anomia, which means literally, look it up. Look it up for yourself. Don't believe me. Look it up. It means devoid of the Mosaic law. That's what it means. You don't, don't believe me, though. I want you to look it up. So it says here, 
It is worth noting that when Daniel 12.2 refers to that day in the future, he mentions the word Ele twice in that verse. What is what does Daniel 12.2 say? It says that those who sleep in the dust will be raised up, some to eternal life and some to eternal destruction. And the word Ele is used twice in that verse. The proximity of our portion is to be understood in terms of Isaiah 46.10, when it says, He who foretells at the beginning what the end is going to be like, by commencing parashot, Mishpatim, with the word Ve'ele, the link between the Torah's legislation, observance, and resurrection are mentioned in Daniel is established. In other words, it's saying here, because our following after the Ten Commandments section, which is Yitro, we have Mishpatim. But Mishpatim starts out Ve'ele Mishpatim, and because it says Ve'ele Mishpatim, the rabbis understood that this was a direct connection to Daniel 12.2, which talks about the resurrection of the dead. And it says that those who are being resurrected to life will be because they're operating in the covenant. And this, by the way, applies to all mankind. Wow. So, if somebody's out there wondering, what in the world is Sar Shalom doing? What in the world is Lapid Judaism doing trying to encourage non-Jews to convert and become followers of the Messiah. What are they doing trying to make people, or not make people, but encourage people to live like Yeshua actually lived? What are they doing? What's their whole What's their whole motive behind trying to encourage people to become Shomer Shabbos and, and, and kosher, like really kosher? Why do they encourage them to wear kosher tzitzit and tefillin? And why are they Why do they encourage the, the women to uh, to be modest and light candles and, and make the challah? What's the whole point? Why are they trying to encourage people to live like the apostles actually lived? Why are they bothering trying to help people understand the actual faith and, and mission of Messiah Yeshua? What's the whole purpose? The whole purpose is it's God's heart. The whole purpose is eventually the entire world will live this way. This is why, my friends, that, uh, that what we're doing here is not going to go away. You know why? Because it's bigger than us. Because it's not about us. Hashem is just using us, and we're so glad He's using us for this purpose. But this is why it's only going to increase, and it's why it has so much opposition. You know, I'm not somebody who likes to focus on that kind of stuff, because frankly, you ever visited the zoo? Have you ever visited the zoo, and you're walking along, and you're looking, and maybe you come across the monkey cage, or maybe, I don't know, maybe some other kind of cage, uh, hyenas or something like that? And I, maybe uh, the monkeys are riled up and they're go, going crazy, or maybe the hyenas are going crazy. And you're looking at them and you're thinking, you're looking through the glass or you're looking through the, the, through the bars or through the gates or whatever. And uh, you say, oh, I wonder what's, what they're so riled up about. This is kind of cute, but it doesn't affect your movement. Like you're still in the zoo enjoying yourself. They're going crazy behind the glass, but you're continuing to eat popcorn and enjoy your, your time. That's what it's like, my friends, when people are opposing you and you're just doing what God wants you to do. Look at them through the glass and go, oh, look, it's like being at the zoo. This is cute. I wonder why they're so uh, riled up. You know why? Because they can't stop you. You can continue to move. As long as you're doing what God's doing, uh, you know, calling you to do, just understand that, hey, let people be people. 
There's always going to be people to be going crazy, but it's okay. You're at the zoo. Enjoy the view. I'm just saying. That's how you got to live your life. Don't let people control you by their uh, their anger. Because ultimately, it's just jealousy. You know, in fact, to that point. In fact, uh, let me skip over here <clears throat> to something Rabbi Monk said. There's so much to share. I want to uh, make sure that I don't lose track of my place here. So Rabbi Monk is writing. He says, why do the nation say this? What's the ultimate reason that the nation hate us? And uh, the reason is, is because of Torah. It says, it says, Israel's possession of the Torah aroused the jealousy and hatred of the nations. Sinai bears the seed of hate. So the word Sinai, the word Sinai etymologically relates to the word Sina, which is hatred. Which is interesting because it says that the temple was destroyed for baseless hatred. And Sinai is directly related to the Torah, obviously, but it's also directly related to Mashiach. And they they hated Mashiach without cause, therefore it was baseless hatred. And the nations hate us without cause. Shabbat 89b in the Talmud brings down that Sinai is related to Sina, which means hatred. Thus, Rabbi Monk says, at the time of the revelation, the wilderness of Horeb was renamed Sinai to serve as a reminder that hostility towards the Jew is related to Israel's privilege of possessing the Torah. This is why Messiah said, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify to the fact that its works are evil. This is from the book of Yochanan 7.7. Why does he say that? Because he is the living Torah. And the Torah looks at the world and says, listen, I want you to think about what I'm about to say is is not <clears throat> intended to be controversial. But what I'm about to tell you, if you say to the average person, uh, it, was, it will most likely, it will most likely uh, engender animosity. And the question is why? Because it exposes that the works that they're doing are evil. Now here it is. The aver- if you told the average person, this simple fact, and it's a fact, it's not an opinion, that eating pork is a sin, S-I-N, sin, hate. If you told the average person that, that would engender animosity. Why? Because you've just exposed, you've just sh- shined the light on the fact, a testimony to the fact that what they're doing is a work of evil. It's a simple fact. It's not a matter of opinion. God says that eating pork is a sin. Let me throw something else out at you, by the way. In Acts chapter 15, which uh, believers love to use as their four laws, the only four laws they're committed to, um, which of course is absurd, but one of those four laws is that you're not allowed to eat meat strangled. So someone was sharing with me yesterday something I already kind of knew, um, um, but they reminded me of it. And that is that in, in America, and in many parts of the world, I suppose, when, when uh, pigs are being slaughtered, and this also applies to uh, fowl. They do this with fowl a lot, unfortunately. They actually um, suffocate them with gas. It's really horrible, actually. 
Um, I don't want to dwell on that because that's a horrible image. But I just want you to know that when someone eats pork, they're committing actually two sins. Okay? They are first eating pork, which is a sin. And secondly, they're eating meat strangled, which is another sin. This is why you can't go out and have, um, you can't go out and purchase non-kosher uh, chicken for that very, or, or turkey for that very reason. But that, that's, that's, I digress. The point being is that this is why there's animosity is because the Torah exposes that which is evil. Now, Going, moving along in our Aliyah here, we have <clears throat> in chapter 19, it says, In the third month of the exodus from, e from Israel, from Egypt, on this day they arrived at the, Mount, Mount, uh, the wilderness of Sinai. This is 50 days later after the, uh, the um, Pesach. So Rabbi Monk says here, Seven weeks following the exodus were a period of mental and spiritual purification for Israel. Now, this is why we, we count the Omer. When we count the Omer beginning on the 16th of Nisan, we count for 49 days until we get to Shavuot. The reason we count the Omer is because that is a period of purification and a, spirit, and a period of reflection. And moving forward here, it says, On this day, by Yom Hazeh, um, Rabbi Monk points out, Rashi notes that this, uh, that it was the first day of the month. However, this is interesting. However, the day of the actual giving of the Torah is not specified. Just as the Torah was presented in a barren no-man's land, so too was the precise time of its revelation obscured. This was because the Torah's divine origin, which transcends time and space. That, that, that's why. The Torah's origin is divine, and as a result, it transcends time and space. The Torah, he writes, is like a man's soul, which rules his body, but has no fixed location. When I read that, do you know what I thought of? When it says here that the actual giving of the Torah was not specified, and because of its divinity, it, it transcends time and space, and it's like a man's soul. When I read all that together, I thought of, no man knows the day or the hour. So Torah came on a day when no man knew the day or the hour. We celebrate it now on the 6th of Sivan because we understand that's when it actually happened. But until that time, nobody knew when it was actually going to come. Because no man knew the day or the hour. So also in this passage, Moses says to speak to um, the house of Jacob. And the sages bring down that the house of Jacob refers specifically to the women. So it says, Rashi explains that this refers to the women of Israel. Talk to them gently and then relate to the children of Israel. That is, address the men in a little bit harsher language. We need a little bit more, uh, you know, a little bit more aggression. But we're supposed to speak to the women uh, softly. So it says here, and, and, and this gets into an entire destruction, uh, dis dis discretion, slika, <laughs> discussion, about the importance of women in the Jewish home. So it says here, the, the solemn appeal to be forever loyal to Hashem and His Torah is first addressed to the women because it is their influence which maintains the Jewish spirit within the family. 
Furthermore, they are entrusted to rear the children, the the guarantors of Israel. And it goes on to say, The future of the covenant depends on our children, and the women of Israel are charged with a special responsibility in nurturing and guiding them. You know, I've been thinking a lot lately about a vision that we've had for Lapid and for our synagogue. And it takes time and it takes money, frankly, to make all these things happen. Uh, we, we had to uh, secure a building so we would have a, a home. Uh, and the, the building serves as a place of worship, a place of prayer, a place of community. We, of course, needed to acquire a Torah school, which we did many years ago. And our next big project that was so critical, so important, really, really the most important thing of all, really, is the building of a mikvah. And so, as many of you know, we uh, are uh, in, in the process of, of uh, doing just that. When, and within a matter of weeks, God willing, um, we will actually break ground on a fully kosher, 100% halakhically kosher mikvah to be used for family purity, to be used for conversions, to be used for ritual purification, etc., 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 and to be used for toveling our dishes, not to mention that. Um, It's going to be an absolutely uh, marvelous project. It's going to get underway soon. And and I should just go ahead and take this opportunity to ask you for your financial support. We need you to financially support that project. It's critical, critical, critical. But one of the other things that we need that's also critical, it's going to come after the mikvah, is that we need a Jewish school. We need a Jewish school. It's important to have a Jewish school. And that's something that's been on my mind and heart here recently, that we really, really need such a place. And so uh, we have the facilities here to make it happen. We just need the right plan. We need the the right uh, person to lead it. We need the right teachers. And of course, because we live in a world of, uh, of material things, we need the money to make it happen. And so we need people like you who are watching to support, uh, and to support the mikvah, to support the synagogue, to support the school. And so I just I bring that out because that's on my heart. It's our vision. It's something we've talked about in years past, but I, I sense that that is something that is coming to pass really, really soon. And so I want you to really pray with us about that. And I, I, I just, I'm, it's amazing. It's like the, the ground is shaking right now beneath my feet because There's something going on. I said in a drosh recently that things are changing. Things are changing. Something's happening. And uh, it's amazing. But um, listen, I want to share a couple more things before we uh, conclude today. Specifically about... about the women. There's there's things that could be said here about the Torah being given in an open place. We've covered before. All important. But I wanna I wanna focus in just a couple more things about you ladies and the importance of what's going on with with uh women uh in Lapid Judaism. Um you know it says here in the Kehol Tumash, it says because of their central role in educating children and thereby assur- assuring Jewish continuity, the necessity for women to study the Torah takes precedence even over the men. 
Now, we all know that men are supposed to t study Torah. We're called to be priests of our home, and we better know Torah. We better be studying Torah. We better be uh, reading Torah. But you ladies need to make sure that you're reading the Torah portion and you're studying it. Why? Because the very existence and continuity and continuation of Lapid depends upon you. It says here the development in woman's Torah study is both a foretaste and a preparation for the Im imminent messianic redemption. Your study of the Torah, ladies, please listen to me. You study the Torah, you ladies. You this will actually bring about a a a a uh, uh, a quick messianic redemption. It says here at that time knowledge of the Torah will be universal. And intrinsic qualities of women will be revealed. They will participate in drawing divine wisdom from the Torah on an equal footing with men. There's another place where it talks about that the um, the the spiritual atmosphere of the home. Yeah, oh, here it is, right here. Even the husband's spirituality, it says here, is greatly dependent upon his wife's Torah study and his wife's life. Every woman sets the tone in her home and is thus actively responsible for the physical and spiritual health of her entire family. Judaism, ladies and men, gentlemen, is the very first equal opportunity religion. Yes, men are the head of the house. Absolutely. Yes, the papa, the papa, the papa. Uh, is the ultimate head, right? Absolutely. He's the king of the home. Absolutely. And the woman is the queen. And so the woman uh, house is her domain. Uh, you know, it's, it's her place. And she sets the spiritual atmosphere there. This is why the book of Proverbs says, better to sit on the corner of the, of the roof than to live in a house with a contentious wife. What does that mean? It means it's better to be alone than to have an ungodly wife. But when you have a godly wife, she's that's she is a true eshes chayil. She is truly a precious stone, a a precious ruby, a woman of valor. Okay, one more thing. More. This is from Rabbeinu Bakia to this topic. It says, moreover, a good woman is the main reason Torah has a future. <laughs> moreover, a good woman is the main reason Torah has a future. The mother encourages her young, so her young son to attend the Torah Academy. That's what I was talking about a second ago. We need a Torah Academy. Can you imagine being able to send your children to a, a, a Lapid Academy where they're learning math, they're learning uh, you know English, they're learning literature, they're learning history. Thank God, real history. They're they're learning uh, science. And they're also having a Humash class. They're also having a Hebrew class. Come on. And they're eating kosher food. And when it comes time for Minka, we stop and have Minka. Can you imagine that? It's going to take prayer and it's going to take finances. And it's going to take a willingness for people to stick together. Anyway, I digress again. It's my third digression. So here it is. The mother encourages her young son to attend Torah Academy. Seeing she is at home throughout the day, she is one who responds to the various needs, both real and imagined, of her children. She protects them against all kinds of dangers. She does all this so that he will cleave to the path of Torah 
also when he becomes old, Proverbs 22, 6. This is why it is incumbent upon a woman to pray to God at the time she lights the Sabbath candles, a commandment which is especially addressed to her, that he may grant her children who will learn Torah and observe its precepts. Any prayer is more likely to evoke a positive response when it is offered at a time when one performs a mitzvah. The merit acquired by lighting the Sabbath candles, which provide physical light, helps her children to become Torah scholars. This is alluded to by Solomon in Proverbs 6.23, that by lighting a candle to provide physical light when one is performing a mitzvah, the result will be that spiritual light descends upon her children who have studied Torah. We think that when we light a candle, we're just doing so because for the Shabbat purpose. We think we're doing so because it's a good mitzvah. We think we're doing so because it's a beautiful custom. No, you're doing so because you're bringing light to your house and light to the souls of your husband and to the souls of your children. End of our Aliyah today. I hope you have a beautiful, wonderful, and amazing day. Show somebody some kindness. We've got a lot more to cover in this tour portion. It's going to be amazing. Shalom, shalom, shalom. Have a beautiful, wonderful, and awesome day. And with God's help, we'll see everybody tomorrow.